Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, August 12, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. You can find us at our new URL at www.commentary.org. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So uh, not only did Andrew Cuomo's resignation cast a shadow over Joe Biden's towering accomplishment, the bipartisan infrastructure, hard infrastructure bill uh, passed uh, the Senate by a margin of 69 to 30, but that wasn't the biggest political news of the day because of Andrew Cuomo's resignation. Uh, We are in the long, dark night of the soul in relation to the final passage of this infrastructure bill because the squad has come out. The Democratic progressives have come out to say that they will not consider voting for the bill unless there is the giant $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill for them to vote on also. And with a three-seat majority in the House uh, for Democrats, Nancy Pelosi finds herself in an incredible pickle, which is that maybe she can say, fine, you progressives go do what you think you need to do as is necessary, and we will now rely on the goodwill and the good faith of Republicans who want to be on the right side of the infrastructure bill in the House and will vote for it and therefore allow you to cast a vote against it, but will still have Joe Biden's triumph with the infrastructure bill Or Kevin McCarthy can decide, the House minority leader can decide to attempt to put a stake through the heart of the Biden presidency by convincing his uh, members uh, to vote en masse against the bill, which means that every Democrat but two needs to vote for it for it to become law. What an interesting political dynamic. This is really, really interesting. The infrastructure bill is so popular that it got 19 Republican votes in the Senate out of uh, out of 50. Doesn't sound like a lot, but uh, it's still the first time in almost 20 years that we've had such a bipartisan vote. Huh. Well, I think it is interesting. It would be more interesting if I thought Nancy Pelosi would do the would the the, the first scenario. Um, the reason I suspect she won't is because it would be completely visionary and uh, kind of the beginning of the end of the squad as, as a political force. And, and, I, and I don't see her rising to the occasion in such a her- heroic fashion. Maybe we should explore among ourselves the prospects for the $3.5 trillion bill. I think a lot of us in this conversation assume that Mansion and uh, Cinema stated opposition will essentially kill it in its present form. But I was having an o- offline conversation with uh, another person in this industry who's on the right, who's utterly despondent um, over the the likelihood of its passage. In his view, um, I, I guess he thinks that this is just really a show uh, among the moderate members, and maybe they get some concessions, like cleave off some of the green energy stuff, maybe. But generally, that it will pass the Senate in its present iteration. I'm not so sure to the point where I'm actually rather sanguine about um, the prospects for conservatives uh, opposing this, but there's no reason why it wouldn't pass in a, in a smaller stripped down scale. Let's 
who knows what we're even talking about here. We talk about it in terms of money. So like maybe it's 1.2 trillion, maybe it's 2 trillion, something along those lines. Who knows what's in it? It's just the, the, the dollar signs are all that really matters to the progressive left anyway. So is it really imperiled? Is this all just a show in the Senate? Do the, does the squad actually hold the whip hand here? Okay, so let's let's unpack what you just said. There is a world of difference between a trillion-dollar soft infrastructure bill and a $3.5 trillion soft infrastructure bill. Uh, I understand that we conservatives don't like any of this, um, but, you know, not to say that's life and we shouldn't resolutely oppose it in every form of social engineering that it represents, but a $3.5 trillion bill is a budgetary catastrophe aside from everything that else else that is wrong with it in terms of creating bad incentives for all kinds of things in all kinds of areas from education to welfare to support to green you know boondoggles and everything like that but um if politics is the art of the possible and there, I mean, let's, let's now sort of unpack this. If politics is the art of the possible and you can get a $3 trillion bill, three and a half down to a trillion, uh, you've probably done a lot, but the squad is not going to be satisfied with the trillion dollar bill that comes out of the Senate. They will view that as a betrayal and they will vote against it as a, as a, as a uh, betrayal of this once in a generation opportunity to right all the wrongs of the last uh, 50 years. And that's actually, I think that's a really important point for considering the perspectives here of uh, the different factions in Congress. What Pelosi is worried about, what what the Biden administration is worried about, what Cinema and Manchin are worried about is not the same thing as what the squad is worried about. They are professed enthusiastic ideologues. Compromise is almost always seen as defeat to them. Um, remember when, when AOC first presented her uh, debacle of a Green New Deal and it was starting to be criticized on matters of practical policy and, and implementation, her response wasn't to say, oh, my bad, let's, let's go back to the drawing board and work this out. It was, well, it's just supposed to be an ideal that we all strive for. I mean, they don't think of le- the legislative process in the way that it, the legislative process has historically worked. So in that sense, I think what a lot of the practical players who understand politics a little better are looking at are things like, you know, gas prices are rising and the Biden administration knows this. They're they're encouraging OPEC to, to pump more, to get more oil out in, into the market. Inflation continues to rise for a number of important consumer goods and people are feeling it in their wallets. The, the kind of spending um, I think Americans just hear the trillion number and go, what? And there's all the debt ceiling issues that haven't been really tackled yet. So so there are a lot of practical political concerns that it doesn't strike me the squad has any interest or any real political need to address since they're all in pretty safe seats. But the moderates really have to care about this stuff. They've got to go back to voters and explain why they're spending this money. Briefly, from our, our perspective, there was an inauspicious poll result yesterday from Fox News, which asked the following, quote, do you favor or oppose the additional infrastructure items being considered by the U.S. House that would allocate $3.5 trillion and include spending to address climate change, health care, and child care? That question generated 56% favorability, while only 38% disapprove. So that's going to only 
you know, strengthen the hand of the, the squad types in the Senate and the House. Okay, we have a weird, uh, bizarro image effect going on between the Senate and the House. We know that Manchin and Cinema, <clears throat> the resp- Democratic senators, respectively from West Virginia and Arizona, are opposing, you know, support are opposing the giant bill, and in so doing, uh, in opposing the giant bill, they are providing cover for seven or eight other Democrats who do not want the bill, but who are being given protection from coming out and being openly in opposition to the bill because of this no-margin majority that the Democrats hold in the House. So you only need one person or two to say, I ain't voting for it for it to die. In the House, you have an almost exactly opposite circumstance in which you have this three-seat majority and a tiny coalition of Democrats. I don't know how many are in the Progressive Caucus. I think it's 12. I mean, the squad is four or five. It's not even an official anything body. But I think there's like 12 or 13 actual open members of the Progressive Caucus. And they want $3.5 trillion. And they too... And then there are probably 40 or 50 Democrats in the House who don't want anything to do with this, but who are being protected by, guess who? Mansion and Cinema. They are also being protected by Mansion and Cinema. Start peeling away the defense of, you know, the defense is being provided by Mansion and Cinema, and you are turning over an incredible political rock. The Democrats sit on a knife's edge. They don't have a majority in the Senate. They have basically no majority in the House. I mean, what is, what's the percentage of three out of 433, which is the number, right? I mean, it's less than 1% margin. And they have the presidency. As I keep saying, there is no uh, mandate for a bill of this size or any other bill of any other comparable size, except maybe for this Fox News poll that that Noah just cited. Voting for that bill, if it comes out in any form similar to the form that it is now in, by which I mean that it really looks like a giant social program spending bonanza, uh, as opposed to being a third of the size that it is now, let's say, in the in the in the most likely scenario where it could pass the Senate, uh, is a death sentence. It's a death sentence for Maggie Hassan in in New Hampshire. She won by a thousand votes last time. John Sununu, the popular governor of New Hampshire, is, will, will almost certainly run against her to win the Senate seat. If this bill comes anywhere near passage, she it's a death sentence for her in the Senate and in the House. It's a death sentence for I mean, I haven't done the you know, I haven't sat down and gone through the 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 seats held by Democrats in suburban districts that are not, you know, deep blue. It could be a death sentence for them.
Well, this it's interesting. I've noticed in the last week in particular, particularly among squad progressive types in the House, a, a slight shift in the tone of how they're talking about this, right? It's not just, oh, we're going it, to, it's a, it's good for the recovery. It's good for the American people. And we talked, I mentioned earlier uh, this week, but, uh, Bernie Sanders is constantly calling this historic, but I'm seeing now more the language of you know, the kind of woke language is now uh, creeping in here too. So Ayanna Presley went on All Things Considered this week and she said, you know, it's to have a just and equitable recovery, we have to make these bold investments. So there's a lot of signaling here with language about it's not good enough to just recover. We have to recover and then repair all these things that we think are injustices by throwing all this money at these at these social programs. Um, so, so there's a there's a way in which they are going to try to box in, I think, some of these moderates forcing them to say, we don't want justice or, you know, equitable recovery. We, we're just, you know, rather than making it about the actual numbers uh, and the amount of spending that's that's being proposed here. Imagine that you are being put in the position that Marjorie Margolis Mazvinsky was put in. She was a congressman from Pennsylvania in 1993, 1994, and she was required by the dynamics of the House in order to get passage of Bill Clinton's financial tax increase program to vote for the bill, <clears throat> knowing that it was the end of her congressional career. And she did so. And it was the end of her congressional career. She was voted out in 1994. She got a daughter-in-law out of it named Chelsea Clinton. So her personal private life, and she didn't get it out of that, but whatever. Her personal private life has been immeasurably enhanced by two grandchildren who might not otherwise have been born had this not happened. But she sacrificed her career to because she believed in the bill. Do you really think that every Democrat who finds it necessary to vote for the bill believes in the bill is every democratic senator and member of the house now somebody who believes that uh, sort of casually in the idea that we should have three and a half trillion dollars in new spending on top of the 250 to 300 billion in new spending represented by the hard infrastructure bill in top of the four trillion dollars in new spending created by the two coronavirus relief packages? I don't think so. So it's one thing if this is the squad's desiderata, these are Bernie Sanders' desiderata and Elizabeth Warren's desiderata. They are not necessarily the desiderata of everybody in the House and Senate Democratic caucuses. You know, I mean, for them, it's Christmas morning. But maybe other people are Jews here, you know. Maybe they don't. Maybe they don't go for Christmas morning. I mean, all things being equal, they believe in a lot more spending than Republicans do. They believe in a lot more deficit spending than Republicans do, and all of that. But this this is a creature of a different order. Well, exactly. Know? That's why it's so much different than healthcare in nineteen ninety three, or even Obamacare in in twenty ten which Nancy Pelosi really did explain to her members that you're going to walk into a buzzsaw here, but it's worth it. And they did dutifully. Um, but this is the entire democratic agenda. I mean, it's le- one lump sum. It's both agenda. progressive and democratic agenda. It's very difficult to, to tease out the individual 
threads in this three trillion dollar bill because it's everything. It's 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 the whole ball of wax in one shot. So if you're to oppose that, I mean, you're practically saying you oppose your party's platform. Well, I mean, that's what Joe Biden has said, right? This is what I want. probably doesn't really want it that's the funny part i mean well, he wants the- it's fine he'd be happy to have it but what he wants is the infrastructure bill <laughs> that's what he wants what he wants is the infrastructure bill um and if they deny him the infrastructure bill we are talking about a kind of intra-party assassination attempt i mean not that's a metaphor <laughs> I don't want the Secret Service to come after me. That's a metaphor. (laughs) Well, and this is why I think the the other two, the sort of two rogue factors right now are inflation and the Delta variant resurgence of, you know, return of a lot of the restrictions and mandates and closures that that could threaten um, the already, you know, the the sort of uh, economic recovery that we've started towards. So it's, you know, people are still having trouble filling jobs. You know, the employment issues still remain. The inflationary issues are still there. Um, there's a lot of stuff that the Biden administration wants to uh, not talk about right now, like the problem, continuing problems at the border, uh, what's going on in Afghanistan. So it's, it's. I do wonder how much uh, pressure Biden, the Biden administration is going to bring to bear on Pelosi. This is why I say the, the if if this gets tanked because of the all or nothing demands of the squad, um, this is the beginning of the end of the squad as a political force, because it is it is by creating this binary choice that 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 they manage to wield the outsized power that they that that they that they enjoy. Um, I don't think I don't think it's just that, though. I mean, it, they exist as a force because we're going to go back into our favorite Plato's cave metaphor. They exist as a force because uh, the because people in the cave see the shadows that they cast and think that those shadows are real. Those shadows are Vogue magazine and a cover of Time when Time doesn't matter anymore and a CNN special about AOC when nobody watches CNN and Twitter going crazy over them when... Twitter is a world unto itself, and they are useful to Republicans because they are fundraising juggernauts in reverse, right? Mm -hmm. They are, this is the future of the Democratic Party. Better stop them. Give me money to stop them. So there's a kind of general Plato's Cave effect. Um, This is what Nancy Pelosi dealt with in 2019 when she thought, okay, we're going to censure uh, Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib for their behavior. This is a gimme. Everybody in this caucus is going to want to go at them in order to create a separation between us and their anti-Semitism. And then the caucus was like, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that. We don't want to attack them. They're, they're, it's the Republicans that we want to attack, not them. Why did that happen? Because they too are, they too are creatures of Plato's cave. They too are are living within this bizarre um, bubble political ecosystem in which common sense no longer seems to be the ruling judgment. And Nancy Pelosi, whatever you might want to say about her, and we said a lot about her yesterday, is actually somebody who grew up in politics as the art of the possible and has now been forced by the circumstance of her having stayed too long at the fair 
as the party's leader of trying to figure out how to be the person who knows how politics there are possible while satisfying the demands of these illiterate, lunatic, commie, anti-Semite monsters that she has no control over and whom she wouldn't need to have control over because they don't have any effect except the effect that they are granted by their fellows and by the media. That's the weird Can, part. There, there was another weird little poll uh, that kind of surprised me that I, I read about yesterday about uh, Quinnipiac did a, a survey of Americans and asked them if they thought Biden was planning to run for reelection in 2024. And 54% said they don't think he's going to run. Which is weird, right? I mean, I know we had, I know we, the standard thing is once someone has that office, they're going to hold on to it uh, regardless. Uh, but there, but that is a potential, uh, wrench in the, in the mix here that in terms of the strategy of the Biden administration, the, the, the wanting to like push everything immediately to hell with the consequences. I mean, it's, that's what Obama did, and it destroyed his party in the midterms. I mean, maybe the Biden administration just wants his historic, you know, uh, legacy in the first term because whether or not they plan it, there, there is, is no this second potential. term, right? But is this the legacy that he wants? I mean, he says he wants it, and again, all things being equal, if it somehow fell in his lap, he wouldn't mind any of it. He doesn't have any. Or, you know, to use our favorite metaphor of the last couple of years, you know, he has no antibodies against it, right? There's no, oh, come on, man. What are you kidding? Seriously? All community college free in the United it's States? It's not what he ran on. All universal pre-K free? Right. Where's that money going to come from? What are you, crazy? People, most people don't even want to go to community college. What are you talking about? He has no antibodies against the, we must make everything free and everything must be free, when even he, a liberal Democrat, whatever you want to call him, knows that nothing is free. But I think he's totally intoxicated with the at this point with the idea of being transformative um, and, and I, or transformational. And I think that um, that is how uh, the, the people whispering in his ear or yelling in his ear um, uh, appeal to appeal to him to get what they want done. I'm telling you, he replaced that portrait of George Washington in the Oval Office with FDR for a reason. There was yeah. the, the, the sort of... <laughs> yeah, he forgot who George Washington was. That's my... And, you know, um, talking about... So so I just think there's a lot of discomfort here on all sides. And as I say, you have this fantastic thing that Manchin and Cinema are doing for the members of the Democratic Party who have not gone completely insane, which is they're staying there saying, you know, it's to our political advantage to be the ones who say no. But if something happens, if there's a huge shift in emphasis that says, okay, how are we going to get this bill to a point where it might be able to pass? This is where it gets interesting. <clears throat> so again, let's say it goes from $3.5 trillion to $2 trillion. It's still going to kill Maggie Hassan. It's still going to kill those moderates in the House, destroy the House majority, destroy the Senate majority for Democrats, unless somehow its passage 
leads to a gigantic economic boom that I think we all agree will will not happen. That they can claim, you know, they can claim did all these wonderful things. Um, I, you know, where they're gonna have to say no. You know, I mean, maybe Mansion and Cinema could be the ones that just continue to say no. But let's say they say, okay, Mansion Cinema, what do you need? And they say, you got to cut this, you got to cut that, you got to drop this, you got to drop that, you got to drop the other thing. And then they get what they want, or they get 80% of what they want. Okay, we'll drop this, we'll drop that, we'll drop it, we'll add the Joe Mansion Courthouse and the Kirsten Cinema, whatever you want to call it, in, in, you know, in your state. And then and the, the, the bill is now $2.2 trillion, and we've given you what you said you needed to have eliminated. Then what happens? Because it's still going to kill all those Democratic politicians and, you know, pave the way for the resurgence of Donald Trump. Really? Is that what the party wants? Is that what the party wants? I mean, is that what the Democratic Party wants? So I, I'm curious what, so that poll, Noah, that you cited, what do you, what is it we think people are responding to positively to get to that majority support this idea number? What is it they're hearing or absorbing that makes them think, yeah, spending all of this money, more, even more money, is it that they've forgotten all of the recovery funds we've already spent? Is it they don't really care or know about the debt ceiling? Is it that, you know, it sounds nice to say things like universal pre-K and free college? I mean, I'm not saying it. Yeah, I don't know they what. They didn't say that. They said uh, climate change, healthcare, and childcare. Okay. That was what they presented Those to the voting the public. Okay. And the voting public isn't going to say, no, I don't like childcare, I don't like healthcare, and I don't want to save the environment. Want the planet to burn, right. No, I mean, exactly. this might be a rationalization on our part, and we should be conscious of and careful to not ascribe motives to the voting public that they don't share because we are a minority. We should always be aware of how much of a minority we are. However, the dollar signs don't really matter when you're talking about first principles. Maybe they matter when we start talking about penalties, fees associated with the production of methane and uh, carbon dioxide, which is taxes. Yeah. Maybe they start changing when we start talking about increasing tax burdens, right? Maybe they start changing when we start talking about a federally funded and maybe probably down the line compulsory uh, child care system for pre-K and, and, and over. Um, you know, maybe that changes the dynamic once we start debating the particulars, which is why they wanted to get this done relatively quickly. Um, but we should, you know, the top lines are what they are, and that's going to be something that's going to be difficult for the right to argue against. You know what is not difficult to argue against? The need for comfort when you are working. That's why I'm talking to you about the X chair again. The luxury supercar of office chairs. The thing you need to make your working experience as productive and comfortable as possible. Why? Well, it's got that patented dynamic variable lumbar support that provides unprecedented support to your lower back. And the new LMAX temperature regulation system, which allows you to experience cooling, heat, and massage in your low back, in your chair. It's patent pending. Look, let's say you're feeling warm. You can set your LMAX to cooling. Let's say the air conditioning is up too high. You can set the LMAX to heating and warm up and soothe your tired muscles. And if you've been sitting for too long in one space on Zoom or doing whatever, you can turn on the LMAX massage therapy and get some nice, soothing pressure points dealt with 
in your back and relax. That DVL support was already best in class. Now with LMAX, your comfort is guaranteed. You won't believe the difference until you feel it for yourself. You're regulating your body temperature and getting massage therapy while you're working. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. Letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR to save $100 off your order. X-CHAIR has that 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. So go to xchaircommentary.com now. Use code XWheels for free X-Wheel blade casters. I got them. They're really attractive. Xchaircommentary.com. Um, okay, now I'm going to be monomaniacal again and talk to you about COVID because everything is driving me crazy. It's driving me crazy because the stats are making no sense and the way people are talking about this are making no sense and everything is making no sense. Um, our friend David Bonson sent me a chart. He sent me a chart last night. Uh, and what it shows is that the, how can I describe this? The rate of death compared to the rate of new cases, okay? So, uh, overall number of cases and overall number of deaths. Remember, we're in the middle of the Delta surge, right? We're in the middle of the Delta surge, so cases are increasing at an incredible clip, and the death toll is rising. However, as of yesterday... The number of cases versus the number of deaths has reached a new low in the course of the pandemic dating back to May of 2020. In other words, the gap between the two has has, has gotten the largest yeah. it's been. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So when you see the number of cases in the United States, daily new cases, Versus the number of deaths daily, it is at the lowest proportion it has been pretty much since we started registering this. There was a blip up in a couple of a couple of moments in early July and in late July, and it is now at the lowest point it has been, including when we were accelerating toward, you know, those horrible days when there were like 3,000 deaths a day, okay? Meaning... People are testing and getting COVID, and they are not dying from it. At some point, we are going to have to draw that association and say that the Delta variant is more contagious, and it is far less destructive. And that is simply the fact of the matter. Is it less destructive because so many people are vaccinated? Probably not, because the number of breakthrough cases, meaning people who are vaccinated and get COVID nonetheless but are showing very few symptoms and don't really feel it and all of that, those numbers remain unprecedentedly low, the number of breakthrough cases. So uh, I'm going insane because then I read Ed Young, the Pulitzer Prize-winning Atlantic hysteric lunatic, COVID lunatic, who is saying, we will never be free of this disease 
And you know what? We bet too much on vaccinations. Vaccinations are great. They're great. They're fantastic. But it's the only mitigation strategy we're using now. Magically, we thought we could just let up and let everybody just be. But we can't let everybody just be because, you know, in some places, therefore, like Louisiana, they're going to have to have go on lockdown. And in some places like Massachusetts, maybe masking will be all that is necessary to help. But, you know, we just thought vaccination was going to be the magic bullet. You know what's funny? You know where the term magic bullet comes from? From vaccination. Because vaccination is a magic bullet. Dr. Ehrlich's magic bullet. That is vaccination. And it is a magic bullet. And so... We are seeing evidence in all of these numbers and stats that suggest that vaccination, A, works, and B, you know what else might work? Having gotten COVID might work because we continue to treat people who got COVID and have antibodies as though they didn't, as though they don't have antibodies. Help me out. Am I going crazy? Because I don't want to be a truther. I'm not a, I'm not a mask truther. I'm not an any kind of a truther here. But I don't understand how I'm looking at these numbers and I am not flipping out and people whose job it is in life to look at these numbers are flipping out. Well, I, it's kind of ironic the way that Ed Young is is describing this because it's sort of what we have been talking about since we went daily on this podcast as lockdowns began, which is the virus presents in different areas, in different populations, in different ways. And kind of all virus politics as local should really be the governing thing here, right? Like local people, local public health officials should really be helping make these decisions in conjunction with locally elected officials who know their local communities and know their needs. I mean, I, I'm constantly getting in arguments with well-intentioned friends in D.C., for example, who are always railing about the low vaccination rates in red states in the South. And then when I point out to them that Ward 7 and 8 in Washington, D.C. have lower vax rates than all of those states, they, they just can't believe it that it's like what what and and my, my argument being that's those wards have actually been heavily lobbied constantly from day one given priority and access and and told over and over again we're doing this for you you need to do this and they still refuse as to Noah's point yesterday about there will always be some holdouts so it's funny that at the at the very moment where there's an acknowledgement that this virus as it continues we do in a way have to live with it but it will be living with it locally in a lot of with a lot of more strength or severity in some places and others yet we're now doubling down on the top down federal bureaucratic measures the fact that biden is whimsically thinking about a federal mask mandate which is clearly unconstitutional we're 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 reverting to top down measures at the very moment where we should be going far more local about these kinds of controls i must confess <clears throat> That it is, it is a daily struggle against my own inclination toward radicalization. Um, because I can't stand the tone of false modesty, the more in sorrow that people who, who advocate this sort of thing adopt. Oh, you know, it's so tragic that we're back to the, to the status quo of March of 2020. But it is what it is. And if we have to shut down schools because there's an outbreak among two students that we can't actually trace, you know, that's just going to shut down the whole community because then parents can't go back to work. So this, so these mitigation measures, these draconian mitigation measures among children who don't actually get this thing. And when they do, it's almost never even remotely consequential. Um, you know, this is just the, the, the crisis is upon us and this is the burden that we have to bear. And would that it were not so? 
but it is. And the sober among us have to adopt these measures and bear this burden for the benefit of a wholesome society, as though they don't love it, as though they're not enjoying every goddamn minute of this. And it is driving me up a wall to the point where I'm just moving. (laughs) No joke. I'm going to the wilderness to find a laissez-faire community that accepts me for me. Okay, I got another media thing. The act of being me needs to be in the wilderness. (laughs) No, being Noah. We need to see him as special. What you're saying (laughs) is that you found that being yourself is more important than anything else, much like AOC. It really is. Yes, self-actualization is my only goal in life now. Um, Selfish as it is, but AOC showed me the way. It's very moving, and I, 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 I am so glad. I'm so glad that you are you have learned the wisdom of the millennial. <laughs> I'm so glad that this, you prove that you are educable by our youngers and betters, because after all, they I've know, always identified as a they know things that we don't know. Okay. I'm well, so, so you are okay, fine. So I was at the tail end of the baby boom and I always hated being at the baby <laughs> boom. So, but I want to, I want to go to a, a story in Politico yesterday. Children's hospitals are swamped with COVID patients and it may only get worse. That's the headline, okay? Swamped. We are swamped. Nearly 1,600 kids with COVID-19 were hospitalized last week, according to this story. A new seven-day record, a 27% increase from the day before. Okay. Now it doesn't say how many children nationwide are hospitalized with COVID, but I think we can presume that that 1600 number is the lion's share because people don't stay in the hospital for months and months and months. Right. Um, guess how many children there are in the United States categorized as children by the CDC, 75 million So there are 1,600 kids hospitalized with COVID out of 75 million. So I went to Google because my math is so terrible. And I typed in, you know, 1,600 is what percentage of 75 million? (laughs) And whatever program it was that came up, whatever website came up that I clicked on, couldn't even calculate it. Because it only went to four digits beyond, you know, 0.0000, something like that. This doesn't even register as a percentage of the overall number of children in the United States. And we also don't know, by the way, when we see just those numbers thrown out with the shocking headline, how many of those children are admitted to the hospital and have underlying conditions that make them more susceptible to uh, complications from COVID? This is always like when I see the numbers now, there's never a context of X percentage of those hospitalized had had comorbidities. A lot right. of these children have comorbidity. Right. Tragically, are right. are either immunocompromised right. or have other things that that bring comorbidities. Okay, I want a rational read... conversation yeah. around this. I mean, this is a noble effort to have a rational discussion around this based on statistics alone, and being a, remove the passion from it. But you can't have a dispassionate conversation about this in the public because one is too many, and the plight of sick children is emotionally affecting. It's going to affect anyone, us included. Right. Okay, but but but. Again, this is a story that was actually published to be alarmist, right? 
Children's hospitals are swamped with COVID patients. By the way, just to let you know, you know, children's hospitals don't only take children. I just want to go into that, number one. And number two, you know, when they say things like the ICU wards are filling up, an average hospital has like six ICU beds. You know, it's not like they have a ward. It's not like Gone with the Wind and it's like the Atlanta. It's like the train station in Atlanta and there are 50,000 bodies like lying there. Like ICUs, are, they're very small. So when they fill up, it means they go from one to six, you know, I mean, I I don't mean to be flip, but I mean, you know, at some point, these numbers matter. And here is a quote from this article. Even as pediatric cases spike, doctors and scientists say there is not enough evidence to determine whether Delta causes children to become sicker than earlier COVID variants did. Oh, really? Oh, so it, it, there's no data to suggest that they that maybe it's making them less sick. Okay. The overwhelming majority of children who contract the virus don't require hospitalization. Really? Oh, they don't require hospitalization. So you mean they get better on their own. Hmm. And pediatric deaths still make up less than, ready? One-tenth of one percent of all pandemic deaths. That's point, I believe, 001, I believe. Somebody may correct me because I'm so bad at math. According to the CDC, although states normally take longer to investigate pediatric deaths, creating a lag in that data, it's not enough to meaningful change the overall conclusion that COVID-19 remains far more dangerous for adults. So here's an article about how children's hospitals are reeling from the horrors of the pandemic, a pandemic whose death toll among children is one-tenth of one percent, and in which, in a country with 75 million children, there were 1,600 of them hospitalized with this condition last week. But there's also, I mean, the other the other thing we have to uh, talk about is the financial incentive of media companies to keep the alarmism going. Obviously, we've mentioned this before, and and it's a huge part of this. They're they're and they have to locate the populations now that they consider more at risk. It's certainly the unvaccinated. The Times did a story uh, that Abe sent around to us about you know unvaccinated African Americans in New York. Like why aren't they getting vaccinated? And it was an it was kind of surreal to read the responses. It was all treated, of course, in in, in a tone that you never would have found if they were interviewing people at the Sturgis motorcycle rally. That just goes without saying. But there was a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of quality to it. One Black Lives Matter activist said, well, I don't trust the vaccine because government officials were trying to give it to uh, African-American communities hardest hit by COVID first. They wanted us to have it first, which means they were trying to trick us. I mean, the, the level of suspicion is genuine and real, and it's a, it's a true problem in some of these communities and not just with regard to vaccination. So I'm not trying to, to belittle that sentiment. But the way that the Times handled the story was very much like you're all these people are all going to die and it's it's someone's fault. What what should we do? Oh, the hand wringing and as Noah said, I, oh, more and more in sorrow and anger. Can I belittle the sentiment? I, I want to belittle the sentiment because <laughs> because there there was one line in the piece that was just a total non sequitur. Uh, they, were, they were talking to uh, uh, an African American who didn't want the vaccine and said something to the effect of. 
So you're telling me I'm supposed to worry about a vaccine instead of cops coming to kill me? I will belittle that sentiment. Yes, that's, yeah, yeah. Well, but the Times is very, very uh, strategically constantly trying to find new communities that it can do a COVID story on, right? It's like COVID here, COVID here, COVID here. And I mean, forget cable news. Cable news is just the screaming Chiron of, of, of COVID deaths is constant. And people have not just become desensitized to it after a year and a half, which is understandable. They've become actively paranoid about what they're being told. And I think that's the shift that has happened over the last few months. And going into fall where we've been looking forward to economic recovery, schools returning, all these things. If that's continuing to be jeopardized, and you do see it in the clashes, particularly as, as Noah has been writing about with, with schools, you're seeing that have a really bad effect on people's ability to have rational conversations. And by the way, I just the more I think about the, the comment that I just referenced, um, I want to do more than belittle it. I think it's, it's, it's interesting though, to examine it in that maybe if you spend a year telling people that America, everything about America is bad and geared toward the destruction of minorities, maybe when the vaccine comes out, they, they will have actually listened to you um, and, and, and believe that um, uh, as, as a result of uh, systemic and structural racism and uh, uh, critical race theory, which says that absolutely everything about th- this country is established for, for white dominance, Maybe they will say, you know what, that includes this vaccine, too, and I'm not going near it. Absolutely. And, and many of the respondents in this uh, in that story said, I don't trust something made by white doctors. Right. OK, so um, Jacob Siegel in Tablet, this is this piece is now two weeks old. But um, uh, speaking of uh, media's incentives in finding novel angles on which to talk about uh COVID in, uh, in politically acceptable ways. Uh, Jacob Siegel, at a piece called The Nanny State Meets the Marquis de Sade, uh, found an article in Rolling Stone um, by uh, Sean Illing called Meet the Doms Who Are Demanding Their Submissives Get Vaxxed. So this is an article about how uh, dominatrixes who, you know, insult and beat and sexually humiliate men for money um, are worried <laughs> that their submissives are going to give them COVID. And so they are enf- enforcing vaccination mandates on their submissives. Um, this is Bob, an easy thing to mock. In middle America, saw a tweet from Goddess Alexandra Snow, a professional dominatrix and dungeon owner who operates Wicked Eden, a BDSM collective based in Columbus, Ohio. I don't know why that cracks me up that it's in Columbus. The tweet stated that any submissives who wanted to session with Snow in person, apparently session being a verb in the dominatrix community, would have to show proof of vaccination. Bob had been subscribing to Goddess Snow's OnlyFans and tributing her, giving her money, for almost two years, and he got in touch with her to discuss whether or not he should get the vaccine. It was... (laughs) It was less... (laughs) 
was less about convincing me and more about her confirming to me that it was the right thing to do, he says. He got his final shot three weeks ago. It feels good to know that I'm contributing to others not falling seriously ill. And it, of course, it's gratifying to know I've done something that Goddess Snow approves of. No, look, I'm sorry. This is a perfect example of the kind of community outreach and messaging the CDC claims it wants to do. I mean, if you trust someone to put a ball gag in your mouth and, you know, hit you across the back (laughs) with a riding crop, you will trust what they say, right? They have your best interest. They will protect you. This is, I, I, it's perfectly consistent messaging, in my opinion. There are implications for this well beyond the BDSM community, which is easy enough to mock. But the top, you know, the conclusion we should draw is that service providers with an intimate relationship with their clientele have a much better track record of convincing the marginal who, who haven't made an identity out of getting on not being vaccinated to get vaccinated in order to partake in the services that make them happy. Um, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from this sort of thing if we actually wanted to increase vaccination rates around the margins. Okay, I stand corrected. I stand corrected. I was going for a whole angle on how Rolling Stone and media outlets like this are only interested in stories about how to get people vaccinated if they if they involve dominatrixes and stuff like that. But um, apparently, uh, Sean uh, Illing has has done America a yeoman service in providing us with a an example of how best to spread the gospel, which apparently does involve uh, ball gags and ritual <laughs> humiliation. We keep being told, though, that you're not supposed to insult the unvaccinated and be mean to them because then they won't won't listen to you. So well, I'm if not anybody sure is that this... amenable to being insulted, it's the sadomasochists among us. <laughs> and who among us is not a sadomasochist? You know who's a sadomasochist? Someone who runs a small business who doesn't get Bambi. You know why? Because when running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and those HR manager salaries aren't cheap. An average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business to provide you with a dedicated HR manager who will help you craft HR policy and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. Change your HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength with Bambi, your dedicated HR manager available by phone, email, or real-time chat, and from onboarding to terminations. They customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month, month-to-month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today from them. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule that free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash commentary, spelled BAM, to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. Well, I'm not sure that I have anything that can possibly match uh, the uh, last segment's uh, surprise appearance of, um, of, of alternate lifestyle vaccination... We're going to get some great new sponsor opportunities. Just just saying. Yeah, well, you're reading them. You're reading them. We're going to start calling you Goddess Christine Rosen. I'm on it. No problem. (laughs) I can't Uh, have so much time we have left. Can we introduce a little Afghanistan talk? Uh, Yeah, just to bring everybody down. Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, sure. So this morning, news uh, out of Afghanistan: the Taliban claims to have captured the city of Ghazni, which is the provincial capital, on the road to Kabul. 
We have unconfirmed reports Seven, that they're 70, in the, 75 miles from Unconfirmed Kabul. reports that they have uh, secured the center of Kandahar, the largest, the second largest city in Afghanistan. Um, <clears throat> this isn't even a slow motion disaster anymore. It's a fast moving disaster. And to hear the administration talk about it is to be very depressed with how they view um, things as they're going now. We had uh, a tweet from the U.S. Embassy in Kabul uh, not too long ago talking about uh, how this is, uh, the, the quote, they should devote their energy to the quote, to the hashtag peace process, not a military campaign, hashtag ceasefire now. Um, Jen Psaki at the White House briefing room yesterday confronted with the advancements that the Taliban has made and said, you know, that they believe that the security forces have the equipment numbers and training to fight uh, and that will strengthen their position at the negotiating table. What negotiating table? This is utterly diluted. The notion here that they're talking about Doha, Doha, Qatar, where we have engaged in peace, fruitless peace talks over the course of two administrations now, they think that that's a live venue? Uh, Zal Khalilzad hasn't been able to get in touch with his counterpart in weeks. It's over. Well, Noah, you brought us down. As that's what you wanted to do, it's the horrible story and it's terrible. And because I am on a system that only allows me to be on the internet for 60 minutes right now, we got to end this without everybody else chiming in on the horrors of it. We'll talk some more about this many more times in the weeks to come. And we'll be back tomorrow for Abe, Christina, Noah. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.